to Real Estate Coaching Radio, America's number one trusted resource for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Starring award-winning real estate coaches Tim and Julie Harris. Get ready for unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what is truly working to get you into action and make you money in this new real estate boom. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. We're joined today by Amber Taufin, senior writer at Inman News. Amber has been a writer and editor for more than a decade for consumer publications and trade associations. She's edited books, ghostwritten articles, and held multiple editorial and project management positions. She holds a bachelor's degree in journalism and a master's degree in magazine writing, both from the University of Missouri-Columbia. Now, let's welcome Amber to the call as we join our host, Tim Harris. So, Amber, what's what uh, got me to want to – and I, first of all, thank you for being my co-host today. I really sincerely appreciate it. You wrote a brilliant article. All of your articles, of course, are brilliant. I mean, I'm not, I can't single one out, but this one in particular caught my attention. You wrote this in uh, May, and I, you know, it, it, I think it really kind of peeled back the layers of the, answering the question for a lot of folks – what the heck is going on in the housing market as, as far as a lack of uh, inventory? And a lot of people are kind of confused. They don't realize all the, you know, essentially all the dynamics that are really in, in play, causing there really to be a legitimate shortage of housing. And your article is fantastic, and I, I look forward to sharing with all of our listeners all the specific details um, and really what may be coming next for the housing market as far as inventory. So, if, Amber, I really appreciate you being my co-host today. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. It's a real honor to be on the podcast that I've listened to so many times. So thank you so much. You have listened to it because you used to have to check it and edit it before you put it on Inman. So, yes, you probably <laughs> listen to it more than anybody. <laughs> so I, I'm, I, have the, I have the article from uh, May 10th open in front of me. And here's the thing I think you did such a great job of in this article, and I want to talk about this with listeners. The normal market uh, in real estate is really controlled by just it hasn't really historically been that many things. You have builder supply, you have move-ups, you have move-downs, you have first-time buyers. But nowadays, and you really did a really incredible job in this article, it's not just being controlled by all those normal, conventional, traditional you know, things that cause movement in the market, but they're now being controlled by so many other different hands, investors, institutional investors, you know, rental markets. So what are, when you were writing this article, what were the things that really surprised you? Were there any things that sort of just jumped out like, wow, that's, this is something that's really going to raise eyebrows as far as what's happening in the overall industry? Well, I think I'm not sure that I found anything that was particularly surprising, but we did, we set out to answer the question, you know, we're hearing all the time that it's a huge problem. Uh, inventory is a huge problem. It's one of the biggest problems that real estate agents today are facing is finding the homes for their buyers or getting those listings if they're a listing agent um, and they want to represent sellers. So, the genesis of the article was really taking a look at some of these reports that come out from the National Association of Realtors, from the National Association of Home Builders, from the U.S. Census Bureau, all sorts of different sources that are telling us over and over again there's an inventory problem. And so really what we wanted to do with this piece was take a step back and ask why, what's going on. So I think you hit the nail on the head with one of the big, I guess I would call it wild cards, um, with this inventory situation, and that is the fact that a lot of inventory was captured by institutional investors or mom-and-pop investors 
who saw this opportunity right after the recession to snap up some single family homes, many of them in, you know, sort of the entry level home buyer um, um, strata, I guess, you know, layer of, of homes and renting them out. So the rental market is still really strong right now, and we don't see a ton of these institutional investors very interested in giving up their cash cows for that reason. Um, When we start to see rents drop a little bit and when it might be more profitable for them to sell those homes than to continue renting them out, then is when we might start to see some of those homes move back into the home buyer market versus the rental market. But that was a big factor. I think something like uh, 5 million homes were were bought up and are now unavailable and not going into that, um, you know, buying and selling inventory loop that we would so I'll, but, but Let me add some color to that. So Julie and I are in the mom and pop investor side of your equation there. And so we look in different markets and we've been looking in North Carolina. We've been looking in Indiana. We've been looking in the northern part of Austin, not Austin. Austin's way too expensive. Um, Las Vegas, I suppose. I mean, there's some other places we've been looking, north part of Atlanta. And here's what I found, and this is interesting. It goes hand-in-hand with what you just said. Those investors, they did buy up tons and tons of properties, essentially not completely at the bottom of the market, but close to the bottom of the market about eight, nine years ago. But what a lot of people don't know, and if they don't work in these markets, they don't know, they're still buying. These investors are going into marketplaces. um, There was a house in North Carolina, actually, recently, that um, one of my coaching clients was kind of giving me the notes on. It was uh, one of his listings, and the investor, and and there's two or three of these big companies, and they literally own thousands of houses. They're going into his market in North Carolina, Charlotte, uh, that area, and and they're paying retail. And what's more is they're paying over asking. Now, the formula in 2012, 2013 was they would go in there to offer 97% of ask the listing price. But now they're, they're buying houses. And listeners, you've got to hear what I just said because it's really incredible. You guys who think the investors were only buying distressed property, well, they did. <laughs> but now they're, paying, mm-hmm. they're buying retail properties. They're going in and they're buying houses for cash. They're, cl- they're beating the first-time buyers out. Sometimes Now, here's really where it gets interesting. Indiana, Indiana, Indianapolis, okay, uh, around Butler University. We were looking for houses around that area too. One of my co- uh, coaching clients there, he was helping us look, and he was giving me examples in these areas where these big institutional investors are in the market buying, have been in the market buying for the past five or six years. And Amber, this is really where the whole thing gets screwy. Typically, you'll have you'll do, be doing well if you buy, say, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars house. You can rent it out for fifteen hundred bucks. For the most part, you buy a hundred and fifty thousand dollars house, rent it out for like twelve fifty. But what's happening in Indiana, in, in these particular areas, is because these institutional investors have such a stranglehold on the market, they're able to actually get uh, not just like fifteen hundred bucks a month for a hundred and fifty thousand dollars house. They're getting like sixteen fifty and seventeen fifty. And the first-time buyers or would-be first-time buyers or even move-up buyers, there's no inventory, like you said, for them to buy. So they're stuck in these long-term rental situations where they're paying significantly more than had they purchased the house and just making a mortgage payment. That's, as far as I know, has never happened before. So it'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, and did you, like, out of curiosity, did you do any math on how, like, the return on investment these investors look for? Did you have a chance to do that? No, I didn't. That was sort of, you know, one component of this bigger inventory issue, but that would be really interesting to look at. Um, 8%. And, and parse. Okay. That's what, they, that's what they look for. It's 8 eight to 8.5%. Eight 
Um, and mm-hmm. and I, I did the math, and I went to, I went to their websites. I looked to see the properties that had been purchasing. And again, this is all this is not stuff from ten years ago, guys. They're doing this now. Uh, uh, see more markets. I know they're buying in. They're buying in Dallas. They're buying in Houston. And I went to see how many houses they'd purchased. And they had Amber. I'm not even exaggerating. They had one was called Rent Union. I think. I, I if the listeners are interested, they'll let me know, and I'll tell them the name of these companies. But I went to their websites. I you know, clicked on their pull-down menu, saw the cities they were buying in, clicked on the cities, and they had literally hundreds of houses in some of these markets that they'd all purchased because I checked the close dates. They'd all purchased within the past like, you know, 120 days. They are buying houses like crazy, and here's how the math works. They're buying these houses, listeners, and cash on cash, after property taxes, they're getting about 8 to 8.5%. That's the formula. So that's where they're they're purchasing properties, and they're getting, generally speaking, about an eight to eight and a half percent return on investment. I mean, that this really does throw a really interesting wrinkle into uh, what's going to happen with first-time buyers. I mean, they really are getting pinched out of the market in the in the markets where it's always been a great place to be a first-time buyer. Where do you think this is going to lead to? Did you in your article did you come up with any people that were giving any you know conjecturous to the future because of this kind of sea change in home ownership? Yep, I did talk to some people who the speculation is that rental prices are not going to be able to stay where they are forever. And the reason for that is speculated to be the builders. So they have not been focusing on that entry-level single-family market really at all. What you see home Mm -hmm. builders doing is either multifamily homes, so, you know, big big apartment buildings with lots of units, or you see them building luxury apartments. Now, those big apartment buildings with lots of units aren't necessarily equivalent to the single-family rentals that these institutional investors have snapped up, but their release into the market and their existence is hopefully, some economists think, going to start ameliorating the, the rental hikes. So, the prices that these institutional investors can get for their rental units um, should, if everything you know works out the way these economists think that it's going to, should they shouldn't be able to request as much money for those rental units as they're currently getting. The market is going to um, flood with some of these apartments, which are really nice. I mean, many of them are mm-hmm. comparable to single-family homes. Um, And at that point, it's really going to be a question of whether the institutional investors are going to hang on to those single-family homes and hope that, um, you know, the market sort of balances and then spikes again and they can continue to ask higher rents for those properties. Or perhaps at that point, the home buying market is going to be much more profitable for these groups than trying to continue to rent out the homes. So we might see some of those homes return to the the buying and selling market from the rental market if the effect of building all of these apartments is um, what economists think it's going to be. Does that make sense? You really you touch on no totally. You touch on something really interesting, and it is in, in every market. Listeners, you guys got to know this stuff. You have to know it because if you're going to be uh, be able to help folks make buying and selling decisions, you have to know all the market forces. Um, and yeah, Amber just touched on a big one. There's these luxury, and they're going up all over the, the country. You guys on the coast, you've seen these for a while, but they're basically like rental home or rental apartment condo 
resorts. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. They're sort of like these all-encompassing campuses that you never really want to leave. They have small restaurants. They have just really, really nice places. But the thing that those places always have is they, or rather they don't have a space. So the units themselves are really tiny. So the reason sure. I'll suggest that the single, the single families are essentially going to be always great rentals is because what happens is people decide, well, guess what? If I can have 1,200 square feet for the same price as I'm paying for 700, you know, now that I have uh, uh, starting a family or whatever, I'm going to need more space. And then they start looking for the single-family homes to rent. It is kind of fascinating, and, and I don't have an answer to this, and maybe you have an opinion. Is this really going to uh, – like in your market where you live in Colorado, stuff has gotten insanely expensive. And I know interest rates are low, and I know mortgage stuff is easing and, and all the rest of it. But there, you have to know a ton of people that basically are losing faith in their ability to ever purchase homes. I mean, personally, have you run into people that are like disenfranchised from the experience? I certainly have. And I think, you know, even up until last year, there was still the opportunity to purchase in Lakewood or Arvada or one of the suburbs of Denver that is, you know, within 10 to 20 minutes commute of the city, often with on the light rail line. um, So, you know, very, very commutable. But those homes have even gotten out of reach for someone on a journalist salary, let's say. Um, so my my writer friends here in Denver who didn't purchase before 2017 are looking at the prices and going, you know, with wage increases the way that they are, this is completely out of reach for me. Um, that's certainly happening. What you are also seeing in Denver, though, is the the rental prices for some of the higher end units are starting to stabilize and even go down because there was an overbuilding, I would say, of these really beautiful, oftentimes very spacious luxury apartment buildings that there is really not a market for. They were overbuilt for the market, and now these developers are holding on to these units, and they can't unload them for love or money. So you're seeing some good deals as far as rentals go for some of these more luxury apartments, but there's a huge need for single-family housing. And you're absolutely right. People reach a certain point in their lives when they can't live in an apartment. They've got kids, maybe they've got pets, and it just doesn't work. You're touching on something really important with regards to, uh, you know, expense and all the basic – I look at, for example, San Francisco. The upper-end market there has been starting to soften, and prices definitely – rents are definitely starting to drop. Um, and uh, I, it just it's fascinating to me why the builders haven't really decided to drill down and, and focus on first-time buyers. It kind of tells you that's kind of a missed opportunity because there's going to be an enormous growth unless the uh, millennials, which I'm not seeing any signs of this, unless the millennials decide that being long-term tenants are the way to go, which, again, I haven't seen any indications of that. I don't believe it's true. But if that's the case, then we're going to definitely see a different, a, a huge kind of unprecedented change and um, not just home ownership, that's the obvious one, but also people's ability to build long-term wealth. I mean, that's traditionally been mm-hmm. the only way that most people build long-term wealth is through home ownership. So with regards to, like, investors and whatnot, what if, when you were writing this article and you're going through all your data, because you did such a fantastic job, and listeners, you got to go to Inman, um, and the article is from May 10th, and it's called, in brokers, office managers, you guys should be sharing this with your agents. This is sort of like must-read type information. It's called, What's Driving Real Estate's Home Listing Shortage? What other kinds of interesting things did you turn up from? You know, we talked about investors. We talked about the effects of, 
essentially a lot of these single-family homes turning into uh, what probably will be long-term rentals. We talked about the fact that different folks have differing opinions as to whether or not the investors will put these back in the market. Personally, I'm of the opinion that if they're getting a good long-term rate of um, uh, return and they can uh, at least keep rents up with inflation, that I doubt if they're going to put them back on the market because it's going to be essentially like a good stable like bonds maybe, you know, kind of type of investment. And But at the same time, if mm-hmm. inflation mm-hmm. kicks in, you know, the values will increase. So I don't know if there will be a big rush of stuff to come for sale. You know, I, I, it'll be interesting to watch. But what other macro trends do you think will be affected by what we're seeing as far as, you know, the shakeout post-2007, 2008 housing crash? Um, one really interesting one that I didn't expect but that seemed very obvious in retrospect was the what one economist called the seller's prisoner's dilemma. So, Sellers don't want to leave their current properties, and it's not typically because of equity or because of any of the other, or because of rising mortgage rates or the other reasons that you might consider. Those are a factor, but what is, seems to be a bigger factor is the seller's fear that they're going to unload their house and have nowhere to go uh, because the inventory is so low. So it's you know they don't want to get rid of their house that they own because they're afraid that they won't be able to find something that's suitable for their family and their lifestyle when they do. And with the rising mortgage rates and rising prices, too, there's also a question of whether they'd be able to find a comparable or better house at the same price. So that was a really interesting component to me because it seems like it's mostly psychological. I mean, people are looking at the market and going, okay, if I sell my house, I could make you know a great return on it, but then what? Then what am I going to do? And if you don't have a solution or an answer to that as a real estate agent, then it seems like it could be pretty difficult to be drumming up listings in this environment because sellers are nervous that they're not going to have any place to live if they sell. So let's talk about the government. You have an, Rob Hahn talked in his article, in your article, you interviewed him a little bit, got some comments from him with regards to basically the effect of government regulation. That's something else that people haven't really taken into consideration. The government mm-hmm. sort of entering into more aggressively into a lot of the, you know, the development aspects of uh, new construction. Can you talk a little bit about that and the effect that that's having on inventory? Sure. Um, so what I have heard is that there are technologies out there that can make that can solve the housing crisis for us, essentially. Um, you think about 3D printers or shipping container homes or some of these solutions that people have come up with, really creative people, using today's modern technologies. The problem is that we're not currently zoned to allow many of those solutions. Like here in Denver, there are very specific and strict zoning rules, especially with multifamily housing. It's a whole other issue that has been affecting inventory here in Denver specifically because developers only want to build certain kinds of multifamily units and not others. Um, But that's kind of a different issue. What we are seeing here, though, is even if you had a solution, like you had a shipping container home that was going to take two or three shipping containers, be enough space for your family, be compliant with, you know, gas and electric and water and all the rest of it, but we don't have the zoning requirements in place on a county or city level to allow some of those solutions to come through. And in fact, um, many builders and many economists say that the building environment is so overregulated that builders have almost no choice except to focus on multifamily or these big luxury homes because 
they they'll lose money if they build a single family, you know, entry level homeowner type unit instead. So the suggestion was for city and county and sometimes even state governments to really take a look at their zoning requirements and relax them where necessary to allow 3D printed homes and shipping container homes and whatever else their market is producing to sort of help solve this problem. Um, that is going to require governments working together and passing new regulations. So it's probably not a very fast fix, but um, I do think it's, it will be important moving forward. I think that builders, many of them, especially in cities like San Francisco and increasingly in Denver, are um, they're burdened and sort of hedged about by all of these regulations. And if the only way for them to make a profit is to build a big multifamily unit or a luxury um, a luxury mansion instead of a single family unit, then there are things the government could be doing to sort of spur the the builders in the right direction, I think. It certainly does seem like the old sort of rules, the old guard, if you want to call it that, is kind of using regulations and laws and whatnot to hold on to some resemblance of control of the process, kind of like what happened with Tesla in Texas, where all the dealers association tried to get together and make it so Tesla couldn't, you know, they had to open up a normal dealer, you know, normal lot, normal everything, and, and, not, and they couldn't go direct, and Tesla was able to work regulations. But you look around the country, we talk about San Francisco, but, I mean, it's happening in mundane areas of the country where – VRBO and HomeAway and places like that are basically you can't really rent your you're losing its property rights guys it's basic stuff mm -hmm. you buy a property in some of these markets you they're dictating how you're going to use it they're telling you you can't do short term rentals and you know all the rest of the stuff it is it is actually fascinating the unintended consequences of well meaning so, you know all these regulations and whatnot so where do you think this leads like for the millennials that are coming up they're trying to purchase houses and of course we hear a lot about their the debt you know and it's fascinating too when you ask yourself well why is it the millennials have so much more college debt you know why is the housing stuff going on and i don't mean to get political but really it's, there's a unquestionable undeniable and if you don't agree that's fine we can argue about it but correlation between <laughs> essentially where the government decides to put its focus and where these sort of you know problems start to start to form like for example student loans well guess what you had student loans that everybody could get, no problem whatsoever. So that means more people that go to college because they can have the money to go to college. College goes through the roof. College prices raise, get you know ridiculous levels of debt. Now we're kind of there's a whole generation plagued with this, you know, unintended consequences. And the same thing now seems to be happening with housing. You know, maybe some of the in, in your guys' local markets, if you're really wondering what's going on, they start paying attention to some of the laws and regulations that are passing, and don't be so passive. When you hear somebody deciding, hey, let's make it so, you know, this happens or this doesn't happen. I know in Austin there's a big stink about, um, uh, like, small houses, like those little tiny houses, you know. And, and they finally, mm -hmm. in some parts of Austin, you can build one on your backyard and rent it out. But they even try to, you know, limit people's use of their properties like that. Well, we've kind of meandered off topic, but still it is kind of interesting. It, it all leads back to the same place where it just does seem like there's this perpetual shortage of inventory um, do you, so you talked about technologies that might basically be around the corner that could help uh, provide quicker, inexpensive housing for folks. What about telecommunicating? What are the other types of things that we're seeing as a result of um, the housing shortage that's happening in these expensive markets? Sure. I mean, I do think that there are, in 2017, just in general, there are a lot more people who work remotely. I'm one of them. Um, I live 
about an hour outside of, you know, downtown Denver. So it takes me about an hour to get downtown from my house, but that is completely doable because I've got great internet access and, um, and I'm able to commute in when it's necessary. You know, Denver's got a decent airport nearby too. So it's, it's totally doable. Some people I know I've talked to, um, tech companies in Silicon Valley who are looking at Utah and definitely Colorado. We see a lot of people coming to Colorado from Silicon Valley because even though Denver's housing prices seem out of control to us, when you're coming from San Francisco Bay Area, it's like that's not a big deal um, where our average housing price might be half a million, but theirs is a million bucks. So that's easily doable for a lot of their um, executives and staff. So I think we're going to see a lot more distribution of different um, companies around the country and around the world. I don't think every company is comfortable with that yet. So, you know, you see a lot of companies that are completely fine with remote work, and then you see others that really think it's important to be in an office. Um, and there's kind of a question in my mind of whether the companies that make attendance compulsory, for lack of a better phrase, um, how well they're going to be doing in the future if millennials, for example, are purchasing homes a little bit further away from the city center and with the intention of working remotely, you know, they might be not that interested in working for a company that insists they be in the office from nine to five, Monday through Friday. Um, and we, so I think we're going we could to, be, oh, go ahead. Yeah, we, and we also could be seeing, and you're, and you're touching on it now, we could be seeing really a future a macro trend where you'll start seeing the little small towns throughout the uh, country, they start going up in value again. The towns have basically maybe been passed over for years because of the fact that people have you know broadband, because they have Google Fiber or whatever, and because their employer will let them work uh, remotely. There's been a lot of studies done on that whole re- working remotely. I think the, you know, the jury is still out, but it does seem like people are definitely more efficient when they don't have mm-hmm. to hassle you know, with going to work and have, being in a cubicle farm, and in addition to that, they seem to have a better quality of life. So the last little uh, topic I really wanted to uh, talk about is this multi-generational housing trend. Um, that's something, again, that you guys have talked about a lot in Inman. Can you touch on that and, and what your research has shown? Is that a long-term trend or is that a temporary trend? You know, I kind of think it's a long-term trend, and I think that because we are becoming increasingly distributed and disconnected as a society, so I think that as we age and get older and as the Internet continues to become a driving factor in our lives, we are going to want to be close to our family and loved ones. Um, And this actually, I think, also touches on the tiny house and carriage house trend that you do see happening in some cities Um, you know, I would like to build a carriage house on my own home so that my mom's got a place to stay when she comes up to visit. And I very intentionally decided when I was buying that I wanted to stay within the Denver metro area because this is where my family lives. So, you know, I'm not, I haven't invited my mother to come live with me yet or anything like that, but it's something that I'm thinking about and something that I'm cognizant of. And I think that even if you don't have you know, a grandson or an adult child who is living in your home and needs their own space. You touched on this earlier, you know, the tiny homes and the carriage houses that you can turn into rentable units are oftentimes a a good solution for the inventory problem. If someone's just looking for a room, um, 
they can find one pretty easily if your county or your city is zoned to allow those. Um, it can really alleviate some, some problems and also be a moneymaker. If you don't have anyone staying in your carriage house and you want to put it up on Airbnb, then a lot of the time, since you're living in the main residence, that is legal and allowed, um, depending on what city you're in and what the, the local regulations are. So I really think that we are going to see a lot more houses built and set up for multi-generational housing. Um, I think we're starting to become a culture where it's not as common for a child to leave the home at 18 and be gone for four years or more. You know, I think we're starting to give our kids a little bit more of a, a boost. Um, and I think that we're going to see, you know, little standalone units where people can have their own kitchens and keep their own food sources and have their own bathrooms is going to be increasingly common. Um, we'll see renovations and new builds that reflect that trend for a while into the future is my prediction. What folks don't know, and I agree with you, but what, what folks don't know is that the way that the United States does housing, there's only a few other, Australia being one of them, that essentially has suburbs and the rest of it. It's very normal in most of the world for, multi, for generations to live together. And when you go to Italy, uh, you go to just all these other different places, you'll see literally people that have lived in the same house for you know five, six generations. And they're mm -hmm. in, in the house right now is their parents and maybe their grandparents. I don't know if I'd want to live like that. But in most parts of the world, that's, that's normal. That's not something that would really raise too many eyebrows. And, and only the really, 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 truly wealthy would have their own you know, house with their just immediate family. So it isn't, it's fascinating how um, it, people's expectations, what they want from housing, uh, people's expectations of uh, what they see, how, the real, you know, housing, I think, has had a, still has a taint to it as a result of the recession. People don't see it as the golden, you know, the Willy Wonka golden ticket anymore. And so they're starting to figure out different ways they can monetize it. Like, you know, every single person who's buying has in the back of their mind, well, what happens if the market turns? What can I rent this out for? What's my long-term carrying cost? I mean, you know, guys, pay attention to these trends and understand that when you're talking with buyers and sellers, they're probably having all these thoughts dancing around their heads, and you at least need to be somewhat literate so you can have conversations that are meaningful, opposed to just BSing your way through. Because look, buyers and mm -hmm. sellers are getting really smart. They're getting really, really selective who they're working with. You, you guys on the buyer side of the transactions who've been able to do okay just by having nice social relationships and essentially working that type of uh, sales approach, those days are coming to an end. The buyers are going to start demanding that you guys have a professional approach, a professional everything, just like they have forever on the listing side. So get ready. Those changes are coming. Um, and Amber, listen, I really appreciate the article. I appreciate all the great stuff you write over in, in or over at in, and I always read your stuff first. Um, and I really appreciate you being my co-host today. And if anyone has any tips or suggestions for stories, do you want them to contact you directly? Yes, absolutely. My email address is amber at inman.com, and I gladly accept story ideas and tips, especially if you read something of mine and you go, wait a minute, I have a question that you didn't answer. Please send it to me so I can write a follow-up. Yes, and Amber's, uh, Amber's always very uh, considerate and, and will always ask great questions and help you guys think and just a fantastic professional. I love the fact that Inman's in our industry and we have uh, you know reporters that are actually doing a great job of investigating all these different topics with occasional biases here and there. But for the most part, it's you know real honest-to-God news reporting. I certainly appreciate it. And Amber, I appreciate you being my co-host today. Listeners, have a fantastic day, and we'll talk with you on the radio tomorrow. Thank you, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. 
This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.